From the minds of the suspicious, this is Conspiracy. The Beast of Baghdad will be the title of this week's episode of Conspiracy. Welcome back, everybody. Glad uh, you could join me. Going to be talking a little bit about the first Gulf War and the Bush administration's involvement in that fiasco. You know, the Bush administration, Bush 1, they expressed some great public outrage over Iraq's invasion of Kuwait back in the uh, 1990s. But, you know, there's very good reason to believe that Washington knew Saddam wanted war and pretty much suckered him into it. It was the 2nd of August, 1990, when Saddam Hussein's troops and tanks rolled into neighboring Kuwait, taking total control of the country in about three days. Now, even though the Bush administration and uh, George Bush himself had been informed by CIA Director William Webster that an attack was imminent five days before it actually happened, the administration said that they were surprised by it, that uh, nobody was sure if he was going to actually pull the trigger. And within a few weeks, President Bush started talking tough, and five months later, the United States started bombing Iraq. It was brief. It was a very popular war. But after the patriotic fervor died down and uh, Hussein was still in power, people started asking questions like, why didn't we act to prevent Iraq invading in the first place? Well, to answer that question, we're going to have to go back about 10 years before the the Gulf War itself to build a little background. Um, It was 1980 when Iraq and Iran went to war over a border dispute. The war dragged on for about eight years, it was a very bloody war, and about a million people died. This is a not a very popular thing. You don't hear much about this Iraq-Iran war. A million people died in that war. It took eight years. Iraq, whose soldiers were outnumbered three to one, was able to stay in the war only because it could buy high-tech weapons on credit from us. But after spending $40 billion and losing rivers of blood, which was a term that was used quite often um, in context of that border dispute, Iraq was basically bankrupt. So in 1990, Saddam Hussein, then president of Iraq, appealed to uh, the other Arab states, and uh, since... Iran's Islamic fundamentalism had threatened uh, Arab states all over the region. Uh, He said that it was only fair that they should help pay for that war. So Hussein had some serious cash problems. And these cash problems were exacerbated by low oil prices. And he blamed this situation on the other OPEC countries. And, you know, to be honest, he had a point. Um, because OPEC members had agreed to keep the price of oil at $18 a barrel in that time, but Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and the United Arab Emirates were overproducing by about a half million barrels per day. And because of this oil production, 
overproduction, the prices fell to $13.54 a barrel. For every dollar that the price slipped, Iraq lost about a billion dollars in revenue. So its economy was hemorrhaging. Um, Iraq wasn't the only oil producer that was being hurt by this either. Uh, United States, we're an oil-rich country. States like Louisiana, uh, Alaska, Arizona, Tejas. We were experiencing what was described by some uh, uh, to be a near depression. After adjusting for inflation, oil prices had sunk below 1973 levels in 1990. And so, needless to say, oil producers here in the good old USA were watching the Arab struggle very closely. So throughout 1990, um, Hussein verbally attacked OPEC members who were violating the agreed-on production quotas. He threatened reprisals if Kuwait and Saudi Arabia didn't forgive Iraq's $30 billion in war debt and uh, provided Iraq with an additional $30 billion dollars in new grants. Uh, Hussein was particularly angry with a little country called Kuwait. He charged that in addition to violating the, the, the quota, Kuwait had stolen 2.4 billion barrels of oil, which was then worth about $40 billion from the vast Rumaila oil field, which was actually located beneath the borders of Kuwait and Iraq, with 95% of the oil field being on Iraq's side. So, Saddam, at an Arab summit in May of 1990, warned that if Kuwait didn't stop its economic warfare against this country, Iraq might attack Kuwait. He also repeatedly told the United States uh, how he felt. In January, he met with U.S. diplomats in New York to discuss the price of oil. On April 12, 1990, he met with a delegation of U.S. senators led by Bob Dole. And then on the 25th of July, he met for two hours with then-U.S. Ambassador April Glaspie. As Saddam publicly escalated his demands... His ministers uh, worked quietly behind the scenes to negotiate a settlement with the other Arab states. And for a while, it looked like they were going to succeed. On the 31st of July in 1990, representatives from Iraq, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia uh, met, and they agreed to a partial payment of $10 billion to Iraq for costs incurred during the war with Iran. But Kuwait very abruptly reneged, obviously killing the accords, and told Saddam Hussein to go suck an egg. And uh, that was the last straw. Two days later, August 2nd, um, 1990, Iraqi troops invaded Kuwait. They very quickly took over the entire country. So, uh, as I mentioned at the start of this netcast, We in the United States said that we were surprised by Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. And when I say we, I mean George Bush and his his administration. But there is a lot of evidence to suggest that um, George W. Bush and his administration knew Hussein's plans and were encouraging him to actually attack. For example, George Bush told Congress, and I'm quoting here, In the early morning hours of August 2nd, following the negotiations and promises by Iraq's dictator Saddam Hussein not to use force, a powerful Iraqi army invaded its trusting and much weaker neighbor, Kuwait. 
unquote. But Hussein didn't make any promises like that. As a matter of fact, on the contrary, he'd been warning Kuwait for months that he would use force. And in his July 25th meeting with April Glaspie, again, this is July 25th, which would be eight days before the invasion, he told her that Kuwait's economic war was slowly killing his people. And um, the New York Times quoted Saddam as saying, quote, if we are unable to find a solution, then it will be natural that Iraq will not accept death, unquote. He made it clear that even the United States retaliation wouldn't deter him. He continued to say, quote, you can come to Iraq with aircraft and missiles, but do not push us to the point that we cease to care. When we feel that you want to injure our pride and take away the Iraqis' chance of a high standard of living, then we will cease to care and death will be the choice for us, unquote. And what did Glaspie say to this? Basically, she responded to uh, Hossein in a curiously non-committal way, considering that he was clearly threatening war against Kuwait. She said, we have no opinion on the Arab-Arab conflicts, quote, like your border dispute with Kuwait. James Baker has directed our official spokesman to emphasize this instruction. This is, again, out of the New York Times. So when details of um, this meeting with April Glaspie and Saddam Hussein leaked out, reporters started asking the White House uh, spokesperson, who at the time was Marlon Fitzwater, if the administration hadn't always supported Hussein and, in fact, sent Iraq a green light to invade. And Fitzwater answered that the assertion was stupid and ludicrous. But even though Glaspie was later criticized for mishandling the situation, she was clearly echoing the White House policy. On July 24th, the day before the meeting, the State Department spokesperson, uh, who was a woman named Margaret Tutwiler, said, quote, We do not have any defense treaties with Kuwait, and there are no special defenses or security commitments to Kuwait, unquote. Then on the 31st of July, six days after Glasby's meeting, um, Assistant Secretary of State John Kelly reiterated that position uh, in front of a House subcommittee, saying, quote, historically, the U.S. has taken no position on the border disputes in the area, unquote. Enter Dick Cheney who was then the Secretary of Defense. And he asserted that the U.S. would, in fact, defend Kuwait if it was attacked. And uh, when he said this, his remarks were quite quickly repudiated by the Defense Department. A Defense Department spokesman said that Cheney had spoken with some degree of liberty. And basically what ended up happening is that the White House cut the Secretary down to size and uh, told him that, hey, Dick, you're committing us to a war that we might not want to fight. And uh, he was basically told quite pointedly that from then on, statements on Iraq would be made by the White House and the State Department. So until the morning of the invasion, the Bush administration stuck to its position of remaining officially and publicly neutral in Iraq, Kuwait, um, in any Iraq or Kuwait conflict, despite the fact that on the 20th of July, CIA Director William Webster informed uh, Bush that an Iraqi invasion was imminent. So why would the Bush administration want to lure Saddam into war? Oil. Low 
oil prices had pretty much sent American oil-producing states into a tailspin. Um, so, former Texas oil man George Bush and his buddy Jim Baker may have tailored the United States foreign policy to help him out. This is one theory as to why the administration might have wanted to lure Hussein into, into war. Washington's staunch ally, to this day, Saudi Arabia, they also smiled on Hussein's attempts to raise oil prices. Uh, they even encouraged negotiations with the Kuwaitis, hoping that there would be modest price increases without an invasion. Now, according to the London Observer and a woman named Helga Graham, the Bush administration had been encouraging Hussein to pursue an aggressive policy of higher oil prices seven months before he invaded Kuwait. She wrote, quote, It was discreetly suggested at a New York meeting in January between an American former ambassador and one of Saddam's top ministers that Iraq should engineer a big oil price rise at OPEC, unquote. Now, in his July 25th meeting with Glaspie, uh, Hussein announced that Kuwait's actions had hurt Iraq and that he hoped to drive the price of oil up to $25 a barrel. The State Department cables show that Glaspie responded, quote, we have many Americans who would like to see the price go above $25 because they come from oil-producing states, unquote. So at best, Washington was sending mixed signals. And it's possible that the administration was willing to let Iraq take a few oil fields. Even while Hussein threatened OPEC members, Washington continued to talk about improved relations with Iraq. But apparently the United States was surprised when Hussein took the whole country. Glaspie, for example, was quoted in the New York Times uh, saying, quote, Obviously, I didn't think, and nobody else did, that the Iraqis were going to take all of Kuwait, unquote. Another theory is that the U.S. needed an excuse to staff a top-secret base in the Middle East. Scott Armstrong, this is an investigative reporter, uh, may have uncovered a key to the Gulf War. In a Mother Jones article, he revealed something that most Americans and even most members of Congress hadn't been aware of. The White House, the Pentagon, and the Saudi royal family have worked together secretly for about 10 years to build a network of high-tech military superbases in the Saudi Arabian desert. It was built at a cost of more than $200 billion. It was a network. And it, include, uh, it included five regional outposts, and, uh, and it offered the Saudis the most advanced warfare command system in the world with conventional military capabilities beyond those available to defend Europe or even the United States. It was a sophisticated network of super bases and advanced weapons systems, and it was designed to protect the region's oil fields from Soviet or Islamic revolutionary attacks. The bases were fully armed and equipped in the event of a war. All they needed were several thousand U.S. troops to basically run them. But stationing those troops permanently in Saudi Arabia was unacceptable to the royal family. In fact, some Saudi princes barely objected to the plan 
uh, for religious purposes. Since the Saudi royal family claimed to be the protector of Islam, it had to keep the infidels from ever entering the holiest mosques in Medina and Mecca. Even the appearance of working too closely with the United States could undermine the royal family's legitimacy. But the Bush administration had compelling reasons to staff the base as soon as possible. The secret defense agreement with Saudi Arabia was legally shaky um, under the Constitution. The president may enter into treaties with other governments only with the advice and consent of the Senate. If the secret agreement with the Saudis became known, pro-Israel senators in Congress might have tried to kill it. But more important, the secret paces are so advanced that they essentially determine who controls the Middle East. What if they were seized by Islamic fundamentalists, for example? So the well, Bush may have decided to startle the Saudis into action. His administration uh, had been aiming and sharing intelligence with Saddam Hussein for years, until, in fact, only a few months before the invasion. Um, then, suddenly, after encouraging Hussein to invade Kuwait, the U.S. turned against him and then rushed to Saudi Arabia's rescue. Interesting point of view. Scott Armstrong, he makes it clear that the super bases were the focus of the U.S. war effort. Without them, the U.S. couldn't have won the Gulf War so quickly, and perhaps not at all. According to him, even after the war, King Fahd um, still resisted staffing the bases, but a compromise was reached. Um, and I'm, I'm quoting here, while the Saudis have apparently agreed to station as many as even uh, or as many as 7,000 military personnel at Saudi bases, including at least some special forces advisors, the deployment will be treated publicly merely as rotating units of technicians on temporary exercises and training assignments. Again, this is right out of Mother Jones. So when hundreds of thousands of Desert Storm troops left Saudi Arabia, 7,000 Americans quietly stayed behind. So now in that light, Leaving Hussein in power made a lot of sense. The beast of Baghdad, with him still around, there that's one more reason why we've got to stay over there. Ironically, Jim Baker, again, who was the Secretary of State, may have spelled this all out on the 4th of September, months before the Gulf War, if you basically knew how to read between the lines. When some people hoped aloud that an Iraqi withdrawal might avert war, Baker said, and I'm quoting out of the New York Times, the administration intends to maintain long-term military presence in the Persian Gulf, even if Iraq agrees to withdraw from Kuwait. No kidding. Jim Baker, New York Times. Now, the third theory for why this... um, may have all happened, is that the defense industry was pushing for war to keep itself in business. The age-old military-industrial complex um, reason. Because the Soviets started to dissipate in in 1990, the American public started talking about uh, a peace dividend. And that would obviously put the U.S. military budget in danger. 
so by s- sending so many troops to the Middle East while negotiations were still underway and by refusing to consider any of Hussein's overtures before the war, Bush made it clear that he wasn't interested in negotiations. Even the Saudis, whose defense was our official reason for being there, um, thought some of Hussein's proposals looked promising. But George Bush dismissed them all and went ahead with the war. After the war... America was so supportive of the military, a feeling created in part by the government's manipulation of news coverage in Kuwait, I might add, that budget cuts had seemed inevitable only months earlier, and and these budget cuts never happened. Defense contractors even wound up with more business as a result of the Gulf War. Another quote out of the New York Times, the war itself has done the most to stir interest in the acquisition of high-tech weapons. Even the most backward and isolated national leader can hardly be unaware today that Iraq's vaunted army, said to be the world's fourth largest, was quickly blown to pieces by the advanced armaments the U.S. and its allies used so effectively. Well, needless to say, Gulf War I was uh, a primer for Gulf War Two, and uh, of course now the war on terrorism here. I want to recommend that you look a little bit further into this stuff on your own. Two excellent compilations of newspapers articles are available from uh, an organization called Data Center out of Oakland. Their address is 464 19th Street, um, Oakland, California, 94612. And uh, the, the compilations, there's two of them. The first one is called the Persian Gulf War, Background and Analysis. And the second one is called the Persian Gulf War, The Media and Our Rights to Know. Um, I also want to recommend you take a look at Scott Armstrong's article in the Mother Jones magazine. This was published in November, December of 1991. Uh, and it was called Eye of the Storm. And also um, another great article by uh, Murray Wass um, called Who Lost Kuwait? This was in the Village Voice. Uh, January 22nd, 1991. Well, that's going to do it for this week's uh, netcast, The Beast of Baghdad. Join me next time when we'll um, take a few moments and talk a little bit about another interesting character in American history, J. Edgar Hoover and the Red Menace.